Little Bridges by Ralph Moody, University of Nebraska Press, 1950, Chapter 29, We Face It. Thank you, Lord God, that I get to read, that we get to listen, that we have minds that are creative, that you give us hearts to uh, understand, and and our understanding of the creation you put around us. I pray that it reveal you and that um, we would worship you and tell you that you are good for all that you bring about. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, things didn't change much at Cooper's during the rest of September, but they hadn't been going so well over to our place. Father wouldn't talk much about the court trial, except to say that it would probably be long drawn out. But Fred Altland told me more about it one night when he was over to see Mr. Cooper. He said Father had rigged some sort of a recording gauge at the head gate of our ditch, so they were going to be able to prove in court how much water had been stolen by the water hogs. He said our neighbors were lucky we had moved there because if it weren't for father's agreement and gauge, they would never be able to win damages in court for the crops they had lost. He told Mr. Cooper that father was going to show his gauge readings in court the next day and that the water hogs were going to be the most surprised men in the world. I left Cooper's as early as I could the next Saturday night and got home just before sunset. Father and I put sky high in the corral and fed him. Then we stood out there by the corral gate quite a while and watched him eat. I don't know just how long we were out there, but it must have been 10 or 15 minutes. We didn't talk. We just stood there leaning on the gate and watching Sky eat. Father was different from most people. You didn't have to talk much to visit with him. After a while, I told him what Fred had said about our neighbors being lucky we had moved there and asked him to tell me about his recording gauge at the ditch head. He said it was nothing but an old coal oil can he had rigged so that the flow of dishwater passed a paddle wheel would make it turn clear around in a week. Then he had rigged a float with a pencil fixed to an arm. As the water rose or fell, the pencil moved up or down on the paper he had wrapped around the can. He said he had shown the readings in court. The jury had been up there to test it and then found it to be accurate. So he thought our case would turn out all right. Mother came to the back door and called us to supper just as, we were fin as he finished telling me about the gauge. So we started to go and get washed up. The wash pan and a bucket of water were on the back porch. I had dipped up a pan of water and was just ready to reach for the soap when we heard what sounded like a couple of gunshots down the road. It wasn't, though. It was a horse's carriage, the first one that had ever come up the wagon road since we had lived there. We called Mother and the youngsters out to the porch to watch it come. It was a two-seater, black, with a round hood over the engine. After it crossed the ditch at the gulch, it banged a couple more times as it chugged up the road toward our house. There were two men in the front seat and two more in the back. When I was almost up to the front of the house, I saw one of the men in the back seat lean over, grab up a gun, and swing it toward us. Father leaped like a horse going into a low buck and knocked everybody over but me. I guess I just got bewildered and stood there. Not more than a tenth of a second before the first bullet ripped a hole in our bunkhouse. Father grabbed my arm and yanked me down. There were two more shots. The second one couldn't have missed his head an inch. The carriage didn't stop, but kept right on up the road. Mother fell back inside the kitchen when Father hit her, and all the youngsters except Grace and me were crying. But Father didn't pay any attention to us. He jumped over Mother as she was getting up, and it seemed less than two seconds before her, I heard him firing from the front of the house. By the time I got around there, there was nothing but a cloud of dust a quarter of a mile up the wagon road, and Father was standing with High's empty six-gun in his hand. He reloaded it as he ran to the corral for Lady. I saw he was going after them, so I ran to the front gate. 
Lady streaked through before I had it more than half open. I never saw such a look as was on Father's face. It was getting to be deep twilight, but it was still light enough so I could see the dust cloud turn south along the road between our place and Fred Altman's. It seemed ages before I saw the other puff of dust that Lady's feet made when she turned the corner. Father didn't come back for an hour. Mother wouldn't let me take Sky High and go after him, but she was as worried as I was. She hadn't even cried when Father knocked her over, but before he got back, she had bitten her underlip till it was bleeding. She let me stay in the house with her, but she didn't light a lamp and made all the youngsters go down into the storm cellar. When Father did get home, he had Fred Altland and Jerry Alder with him. They didn't come from the west, though, but from the east, and they were wearing their six guns. Father said the automobile had gone clear around our section and headed north on the West Denver Road. He said it went so fast that he doubted if a man on horseback could have kept up with it for 100 yards, and it, it was has probably hidden away already in some barn in Denver. He told Mother that Carl Henry had ridden to Fort Logan for the sheriff, and then he asked her to get his camera out of the trunk. He had Fred and Jerry take gunpowder out of a dozen or so cartridges while he was clearing, cleaning the camera and putting the plate in it. I wanted to go out to the wagon road with them while they took a flashlight picture of the wheel tracks. But Father told me I'd better stay in the house with, with Mother because her nerves were all jangled up. The sheriff came and looked at the wheel tracks and at the holes in our bunkhouse. He knew me right away and asked if I had got, got any more pheasants. Um, we sat down to supper while everybody was there, but the sheriff was the only one who ate much of anything. He said he would come back the next morning and get the camera plate after Father had developed it but that all automobile tires looked alike, so he didn't think there would be a Chinaman's chance of ever tracing it down. Father had already said he had never seen any of the men in the horseless carriage before, but Fred kept asking if he was sure one of them wasn't this or that rancher from up near the head of our ditch. Of course, everybody was pretty sure that the shooting was because Father had proof in court about the water stealing, but the sheriff said there was nothing he could, we could do unless we could prove it, and we never could. Haying was over at Cooper's in early September, and until school started at the end of the month, I worked at the mountain ranch with High. It was fall branding time, and High was too busy to spend much time with me. I was homesick. Of course, I knew that if somebody was going to shoot a father again, my, my being there wouldn't stop him. But I got into my head so much I couldn't think about anything else. And two or three times, High had to scold me a little because I forgot to take water to the fellows up in the canyons. I had been so busy thinking about riding in the Labor Day Roundup that I didn't notice things around the place our place the way I should have. It wasn't until I came home that middle Saturday night in September that I noticed that Billy was gone. I might not have even noticed it then if it hadn't been for the milking. Lots of fellows don't like to milk, but I always did. It seemed as if milking was the time when Father and I were kind of away by ourselves and as if he belonged just to me. He always saved milking on Saturday nights till I got home. Right after supper that night, Father picked up the big bucket the one he always used for the Holstein, and lit the lantern. When I started to pick up Brindle's bucket, he said, Grace is curious to know how you tell which calves on the open range should be branded with the YB mark. Suppose you tell her while I do the milking. I'll only be a jiffy. Then he put the lantern over his arm and went out. I knew right then that there was something wrong. So I told Mother I'd have to water sky high before I left him for the night. It was a story, though, and I never did it. I went right out to the barn where Father was milking. Brindle wasn't there. Father heard me come in the door, and I guess he knew what was I was thinking, as he always did. He had his head against Holstein's side, and he didn't look up, but he said, Old Holstein's holding up so well this fall that it would be a waste of fodder for us to keep two cows. 
So I let Mr. Cash have Brindle. And it was then I noticed I was standing right in Billy's stall, and it was dry and clean. I don't believe I even thought before I said, did he take Billy too? Father didn't say anything till he had done, got done stripping Holstein, but the bunches of his muscle were working out and in on the side of his jaw. Then he set the bucket over and turned around on the milky stool so he was looking right at me. Partner, he said, we might as well look at it right in the face. We're not going to make it here. We haven't enough feed to see two head of stock through the winter, and I haven't had but five days outside work all summer. The court has only given us damages for 10 acres of crop, and that's all we're entitled to. Because we have rights to only 10 inches of water, it won't amount to much more than you've earned with Mr. Cooper. I wanted to say something, but I couldn't think of anything to say, so I just stood there. In a minute, Father hung the stool up on the peg and rumpled up my hair. Don't worry about it, son, and let's not worry, Mother. There's always a living in this world for a fellow who's willing to work for it, and I guess we're willing, aren't we? Let's go in and pop some corn. Fred Altlin brought me home from Cooper's the last Saturday, Saturday before school started. He was there at the home place when I went in from the mountain ranch and waited for me to change my clothes and get my things together. Fred and Mr. Cooper were talking out by the cook shack while I was getting my things packed. It was hot and the window was open and Fred was talking so loud I couldn't help hearing him. Bullheaded Yankee, he was saying. God and everybody knows we've never had a, we never got a dime for our crops if he hadn't rigged that water gauge at the ditch head. And there he stands with $120 in his hand for a year's work. And too darn proud to make a bale of hay, to take a bale of hay from a neighbor. What are you going to do with a man like that? I knew he was talking about father, and I knew father wouldn't like it, so I grabbed up my suitcase and went out without even saying goodbye to Mrs. Cooper. Father didn't get home that Saturday night till after I did. He was helping a man build a house over west of Denver. From then till Christmas, he came. He just came home Saturday nights and left before daylight Monday mornings. He did stay home a few days in the middle of December, though. How I got pneumonia on my 11th birthday, and until Dr. Stone said he would get all right again, Father didn't go back to work. I never did know who bought Nig or Lady's two-year-old colt or the wagons and harness. Grace told me who had bought some of the things, but all she knew about the others was that Father had taken them away and hadn't brought them back. I never asked him because I knew he wouldn't want to talk about it. When the West Denver job was finished, he let me stay home from school one day. and We went down to Fort Logan to settle up the grocery bill with Mr. Green. It was $86, and Father let me put my last check from Mr. Cooper in on it. Just before Christmas, he got another job. That time was helping build a big house in Littleton. It seemed as though our best Christmases were the ones when we were the poorest. Mother had saved the turkey, and we had all the things to go with it. Packages came from our folks back in New England, and Father must have bought, brought the tree with him when he came home on Christmas Eve. Mother had it trimmed with cranberries and popcorn strung together on long strings, and there were half a dozen oranges hanging from the limbs like colored lanterns. lanterns. The presents were wrapped in white tissue paper and tucked in under the tree the way they always were. There was one sled with Grace and Muriel's names on it and another for us boys, and everybody got new shoes and stockings. It snowed all Christmas afternoon, and nobody came to call. Mother had made a big plate of fudge, and we popped fresh corn and divided the oranges into sections. We had to do it that way because there were only six oranges, and there were seven of us. At first, Father said for us not to divide them because they always made his teeth sting. But Mother just laughed at him, and we divided them anyway. I didn't see him squinty up when his, his eye when he ate some of the sections either. Mother got a new, new book for Christmas called 
when knighthood was in flower. She must have read us a hundred pages of it that afternoon and evening. Wow, what a change in their family situation.